Paramhansa Yogananda, a biography by Swami Kriyananda. Talk 4 by Asha Praver, March 6, 2012. Copyright 2012, Ananda Church of Self-Realization, Palo Alto. We are moving right along. Um, I think we covered number four. He stood understood others from within themselves. Do we feel like we, I think we did cover that. I was, I didn't feel like that was left over. Is there any comments or thoughts or questions from anything that happened in the last few weeks? I've certainly, I don't know how you're feeling, but I've been enjoying this immensely. It's really just put me in much sort of deeper, more interesting touch with Master to, well, to be in this book at all but to also just be sort of studying his nature in this way and just really realizing what the components of his greatness were. And especially the way Swami does it because they're so... um, Well, you're not just saying he was in samadhi all the time, which is a little hard um, for you to figure out how that relates to me, (laughs) except to anticipate it and look forward to it, but it's not the kind of practical advice that the average person can follow. But to understand people from within themselves and to be respectful and to have a delightful sense of humor, all of those things really sort of help us to figure out how we're supposed to live. Anyway, I really enjoyed it. I just felt Master very close and um, he seems more lifelike than ever. Am I the only one feeling that or have others felt the same? Also, this book is very subtle. I'd read it in the manuscript form. I'm not comfortable sitting down. I'd read it in the manuscript form a few times, but it's, ah, this is the solution. (laughs) It's just a little too short there. Um, I'd read it in the manuscript a few times, but the book is always different. There's something, he's just managed to get into master's consciousness and really start bringing it across. It's not a conventional biography exactly like biographies are, because but it's more like the autobiography is what I finally realized, <laughs> where the story is the background for a whole lot of other teaching. But uh, I think Swami's really done a great work here. And like so much of his work, it, it's subtle, it doesn't shout. And so it, it, its power kind of creeps into you as you go along. Remarkable what that man is able to do. Okay, so if there's no other comments or thoughts... We'll trundle right along. Um, Number five. Yogananda was completely centered in the infinite self. As he wrote in his poem, Samadhi, I, the cosmic sea, watch the little ego floating in me. Even a master requires enough ego to keep his body moving and active in the world. But such a person's true center lies by no means in his little body. I remember once walking with him at his desert retreat. He was deep in the spirit. Two or three times I had actually to support his body in order to keep it from falling. He remarked to me one day, I am in all bodies. It is difficult for me to remember to keep this one body especially moving. In Los Angeles, I was told, he sometimes walked up and down Main Street in a locale that contained many bars. He didn't say a word, but to me it is clear that he was centered in those people inside the bars, 
perhaps protecting them from those low astral entities which are always eager to possess people who are on the brink of unconsciousness. You know, it's so easy to imagine that Master's preference was for advanced souls, you know, because we're so ourselves guided by our likes and dislikes. You know, we're always thinking about our affinities and who we love the most, and we just can't help but think that Master was, was partial to certain souls. Um, it's important to understand, as Swamiji writes in other places, the Master was able to give more to those who could receive more. And, but that's not the same as saying that he wanted to give more to certain souls. He poured out his energy equally, and people simply received what they were able to take. And that's why Rajasi was you know, such a joy to him, because Rajasi was be able to absorb everything. Sister Gyanamata, about her, he said, um, I have merely to think something, and the next day I'll receive a letter from Sister about it. You know, just they were so in tune with each other. And it wasn't that he wanted to be more in tune with her than others. It was she who wanted to be more in tune with him. You think about her. Um, master came to visit her house, and she said ever thereafter in the, point, in the place where he stood in one of her rooms, she always kept on the floor a vase of orange flowers, artificial flowers if there were no fresh flowers. She always knew where Master was when he was traveling, and so she could think about where he was and what he would be doing at a certain time of day. She just kept her consciousness where he was. And as a consequence, she was thinking him near. And he was very near to her. And so this story of Master going out um, into the Bowery district was where it was, and just walking up and down the street. He wasn't talking to people. He wasn't initiating. He wasn't teaching. But he was uplifting. There were souls there that he felt in some way or another. I mean, he wouldn't have gone unless he was called. You know the story of uh, when he resurrected, I think in India, someone who had died. He went into the house and resurrected someone who had died. And I guess maybe it was Swami who asked him, you know, did God ask you to do that? And Master's response was, well, I wouldn't have done it if Divine Mother hadn't told me to. So you can be sure that it, it wasn't a random part of the Bowery district that he was walking in. And he wasn't just sort of going to see what might be possible. There, there were souls there whose... Imagine the complication of the karma. That it was strong enough to attract his presence and bad enough to need it in those circumstances. Master says, and it's written, written in this section elsewhere, the Master said not a single person crossed his path except that it was divinely intended. So not a single person drinking in those bars um, was put in the proximity of his consciousness, except that they had the karma for that to happen. The, the result of all of that, at least for me, as I was saying a little bit on Sunday morning, of course we were coming in to celebrate Master's Ma Samadhi a little early. This is the eve of his Ma Samadhi now. Um, just thinking about his consciousness, the continuation of his consciousness, the magnitude of that, the all-pervasive um, commitment that he has for us. And Swami mentions also in this, later on in the same chapter, that Master wasn't merely not judgmental about our foibles, he remembered and understood them. 
you know, which is really even more than just accepting. He remembered, he understood. And he's simply going to stick with us until we're free. And that's really good news. <laughs> you know, when uh, they were, the early Christians were, were passing out the news of Jesus' resurrection, they called it the good news. I mean, think of it. There they were, I mean, thinking back of Jesus' disciples. Um, th they were all Jews. They, they had been studying Judaism with the Pharisees for all this time, and it was all about all the rituals and the rules and the donations to the temple and what the priests say. And, um, and it, it was not, a, and even after death, I mean, it was not a clear picture of what was going to happen to you at all. Um, in, reincarnation was part of their culture, though. It, hints of that are left in the Bible. Reincarnation was still there. Who do you say I am? He asked his disciples, and they named all these prophets who had been born and died before. And then even they talked about John the ba uh, Elijah coming as John the Baptist. He's been born already, but you didn't know him. I mean, it was just a conversation about reincarnation, the kind of conversations we would have. So that was there as part of their teaching. But nonetheless, um, Jesus you know, came to, to utterly renew it. So their understanding, if you think of it as comparable, it's like here we are, and you know, we all were raised in some, were mostly raised in some religious tradition or another, and we live in a country that's nominally Christian or has whatever faiths it has, um, but we're not, I mean, nothing much was happening for us. I laughed once when we were having one of our uh, discussions at Ananda Village at one point, trying to think about membership and how to get people involved and things like that, community life. And people started all talking about how it was done in the churches that they grew up in. And there was a certain amount of that discussion. And then someone said, I think it's relevant to point out that we all left the churches that we grew up in. <laughs> so maybe that's not the best thing to emulate. But um, so there was a certain religious tradition. I mean, the Jews of Jesus' time were involved in a certain religious tradition, but Jesus just turned it on its head. I mean, he, that's why he came in with such force. He drove the money changers out. He challenged their rules. He healed on the Sabbath. He argued with their priests. And then he was crucified for it, and, and the, the crime that was alleged to him was blasphemy, and it was alleged by the, by the other Jews. I mean, the Romans didn't care if he blasphemed. What did they care what he said about the Jewish gods, it meant nothing to them. It was the other Jews who were so outraged by his blasphemy that they had him put to death. The Romans had to put him to death because, as it says in the Bible, the Jews didn't have the right to execute a man. But otherwise, they would have executed themselves because his crime was a capital crime. Okay, so all of this is what happens. And then what happens is Jesus resurrects. Three days after his, his crucifixion, he's standing there amongst them, and he was, he, he was around for 40 days. He didn't just pop in, you know, and then disappear. He was around for 40 days. He walked with them by the uh, beach. They tell, tell stories of them frying fish together, you know. And what they're trying to tell you is that he, he just came back and re-manifested his body and was with them, not continuously, but intermittently. And many people saw him. So he did die. They saw him die. They placed him in the tomb. And then he came back and unequivocally declared that this world is not as it seems. And then furthermore, in the way of a guru, he said, follow me. And that which I do, ye shall do in greater things. If you follow what I'm saying, 
then all that I have accomplished will also be yours. And then Paul, who never even met him, but had such a vivid uh, vision, superconscious experience of Jesus, that his life was totally transformed. And he became the real messenger of Jesus' teachings. He was the one who made it Christianity and took it from the Jews who weren't interested anyway. Okay, the end of all of that is what they, they call all that the good news. And I just love that picture of these disciples of Jesus wandering around. And, and they went first to all the Jewish congregations. And then when they didn't get much traction, then Paul started going to the Gentiles. But when he came in, he literally came into town and he said, I have very good news. And that very good news is that the Messiah has come and that the Messiah is for everyone and that death is nothing to fear. Now, that's very good news. And he said, be of good cheer. <laughs> he says, the world, Jesus said, the world will despise you as it despised me. But be of good cheer. I have conquered the world. Those are thrilling lines in the Bible. And what I was going back to was Sunday morning, just working on this book, you know, thinking of the Mahasamadhi. I kept thinking, this is very good news. Be of good cheer. You know, there's just... What, what can there be? There's no, and, and it's amazing to contemplate. This is this quality. Master Yogananda was completely centered in the infinite self. We tend to think of the whole world and then the infinite self or the, the state of samadhi. And, and I know this is just the way the mind works. He's in samadhi, but all of this is still going on at the same time somehow. Um, when my mother was toward the end of her life, she was not a, a philosophical person, at least not to my experience. and uh, But I didn't know her as well as other family members did, so I don't want to sell her short. But to me, she was not philosophical or religious. And I asked her once how she felt about death. And her answer, somehow her answer just tickled me. Well, I just hate to think of all this going on and me not being part of it anymore. Okay, yeah, I guess that's a way to think about it. You know, this was the world she knew and was interested in, and it would all still keep going, and she would be left out. That was her picture, basically. And uh, that's a little bit how we think of samadhi. We don't realize that in cosmic consciousness, everything is included. It just all is different. So when Master was centered in the infinite self, that didn't mean he was any less centered in the reality that we live in. And this is a characteristic that comes up later. Master enjoyed everything. In contrast to some um, holy men and women who withdraw from everything, Master went just the opposite. He just brought his bliss into everything. There's stories that Peggy Dietz tells about him, which we don't hear much from Swami because it was just a different era when Swami was there, because he was there at the end of his life. I think in that context, you know, people who only know Swami since he turned 80, you know, there's a whole dimension to his personality and life that is just gone now. It was a factor of his youth, and it's not a factor of these, uh, this last decade. And when Swami came to Master, it was Master's last three and a half and four years. And, and so it was just a different reality. But those who were with Master, when he started, he was, what, was he 26 when he came? He was a young man, and you can imagine how vigorous and dynamic a man he was, too. And also, he had to meet people where they were. He couldn't, you know, be too distant. He had to come into their worlds to a certain extent. Swami even explains that some of the difference in 
the way Swami perceived Master and some of the longer-term disciples perceived him, um, was partly the difference that when Master first came, the way Swami describes it, he had to he de-emphasized his own attainments in order to emphasize the fact that we can all realize God. And and so some of the disciples who were trained up by him when Master was younger, Master himself didn't make such a point of it. And only toward the end of his life, which was the only time that Swami knew him, did he speak more about his own um, towering spiritual greatness with complete humility, but just like that story Swami tells about so many saints visiting him that Master said he couldn't keep them all straight. And his explanation is where God is, his saints come, meaning himself. And that Taramata edited it to say where a devotee of God is because she just couldn't get her mind around Master making a declaration like that. I mean, think of it realistically. If Swamiji started calling himself God, where God is, even obliquely, you could see that there would be people who would wince a little bit at that and say, well, that, I mean, we can't really have everyone hear that, can we? I mean, not that I would say that, but you can see how it would be natural to become a little uneasy about that, but partly for the same reasons. You know, you just don't want to have him sound too far out. But, but Swamiji, who only came to Master when he was already in that bhav, you know, just and after Autobiography of a Yogi was published. Autobiography of a Yogi was published in 1946. And Master came in 1920. So that the whole story that's in there, he must have talked about some of it, but it wasn't really in your hands like that. He published Whispers from Eternity, published Songs of the Soul. You know, he published a few other things. But Autobiography of a Yogi, which is really the defining story, it was only around for six years of his life. So, so you, you just see there's a whole different, different thing going on. But Yogananda being completely centered in the infinite self, um, as he wrote in his poem in Samadhi, I, the cosmic sea, watch the little ego floating in me, that absolutely everything in the universe was to him just an aspect of the infinite. And he saw it so differently. One of the reasons I, I started bringing it up in this way is for us, too, it's, it's very important for us to, as much as we possibly can, to shift our perspective of reality and, and, to, and to realize, just basically as Jesus said it, that the kingdom of God is not low here or low there, but the kingdom of God is right where we are. It's right within us. And it's merely a shifting of our, of, our, of our state of consciousness. It's not the creation of an entirely new reality. It's just a question of where we are centered. And Master was centered always in the infinite self. And we get centered in this little reality and that reality and this desire and this anxiety, you know. And, and we're not centered in the infinite self, in, it, in that wheel of time we're centered in the past and the future, and we're not simply, utterly relaxed in the moment. So Master's characteristic of always living in that. I love, I mean, that's why we put these words from Samadhi up on the wall here. When we were designing this temple, we had the idea that we would put words up on the walls like that. In some of the temples in India, many of you have seen them. There's a few temples where the, whole, the walls are covered with verses from the Bhagavad Gita and they're 
I, there was a, one temple I remember where the walls are tiled and there's some kind of a checkerboard pattern and it's big tiles like this and you know many many verses from the Gita are just part of the architecture so it's very powerful when you're in there because you're reading those so we, we thought we would put words up there but we weren't quite sure what words we would put I mean the Samadhi uh, it took us a little while to realize that's what we were supposed to put up there and I, we were driving in the car one day and all of a sudden it, oh, that's what we should put up there the words from Samadhi because it's the primary affirmation of our path and also just from this point of view it's unique you know you'll go into many churches that will say God is love or something like that and or the word is God I mean they'll say there'll be many different things but the words from the poem Samadhi not only summarize our entire path but they are unique to our path because there's no other poem, as Swamiji says, in mystical literature like that poem, Samadhi. And so we get to say, I, the cosmic sea, right there. It's not turned on right now, but you can see it. I, the cosmic sea, watch the little ego floating in me. That's how Master always was. So these characteristics, as we started out in this class, are for us to emulate. So the little ego, even a master had to have enough ego to know what body to move around. Imagine only having enough ego to know what body to move around. I've been so amused. Um, working with children is uh, really a, what do you say? It's a teaching experience for the adults, for this adult, me. Um, I help with this the costumes, I, you know, put the costumes on the kids and they are um, utterly unconscious of the amount of effort that I'm putting in and largely, therefore, completely ungrateful. <laughs> or worse, in fact, tomorrow, in, I'm going to, at least to several of the older classes, and I'm going to explain the difference between a pair of jeans and a costume. Because the first thing that they do when they get the costumes is, to my eye, see if they can destroy them. <laughs> Even just while they're holding them in their hands, they're just not relating to them. Uh, it, and I was saying to um, Matthew and to Helen, I've been actually losing my temper, which is not that easy. I don't get that angry anymore. In fact, I said to one of the little kids, it's very hard to hurt my feelings, really, but you're coming very close. <laughs> and I was just impressed. And... There's no other explanation, just ego. You know, I, I'm doing all this work, which I love doing, and I'm not being appreciated, and I'm getting upset. Wow. You just watch it. It's just like, you've got to be kidding, but I'm not kidding. You know, it's really happening. And just it's just a question of the right context. It happens to all of us, unless we're centered in the infinite self. And if you're centered in the infant self, you just watch the little ego floating in me. You don't actually become angry at a child, you know, for not appreciating that if you pull on that piece of the hat, the hat will fall to pieces and I will have to make it again. It means nothing to them. I remember, it's a, I remember my sister, and I've told you all that story before, but she was, he was, her son was seven and extremely indifferent to the fact that he grew into his shirt because daddy would just buy me another one, which is not a good attitude, <laughs> you know. And she made him spend his own piggy bank on the shirt the next, because he'd ruined his shirt by his carelessness. But I, I did, I have realized watching the children in our school, 
because it's notable to me that the children who are less affluent are more respectful. Because naturally, you know, if something's given to them and they know that they're not going to get 16 more, or they know how hard one of their parents worked to bring it to them, then they're, they're not going to treat it so casually as if it's just a never-ending supply of things that are just going to come in the door. This is completely off the subject, but I started it, so I'll finish it. I remember a, a man from India, was, he said to me once, he was just so surprised, he said, every child in this country has his own room, which is entirely his room, and that room is full of stuff which belongs to the child. <laughs> and when I actually stood back and thought about that, I thought about how many possessions young children have. And when you think about that, that's really very odd. And that's also very, relatively recent. Helen was speaking about her own upbringing, and she was in a very comfortable family. Her father was an attorney, and they lived very comfortably. She had her school uniform, her play dress, and her Sunday dress. You know, and that's what she had. And it wasn't because they couldn't afford more. It was because she was a child. You know, she didn't need an endless closet full of things. And it's, it's, just, it's, it's just interesting when you think about it. But it's no wonder that the children have no sense of proportion or value because they're inundated. My sister-in-law worked so hard and did a very good job of keeping her children's rooms pretty empty. You know, she was always saying, please don't buy them stuff. You know, an occasional good present, but it was so nice. You'd go to her house and her children's rooms did not have very much in them. You know, enough, but not, not too much. Very, very grave mistake we make. So the children get centered outside of themselves, naturally, because they're constantly being inundated with things. Well, in any case, Master was not like that. So let us not think that it's beyond us. And when you're, you know, bored and restless in here, just read what's on the walls. That'll calm you down. I see your eyes going there a lot. Okay. Oh, I did. Um, I don't know where this must have been in her book, but she just talked about how enthusiastic Master was. And she would drive him around. He would want to know what was going on in the neighborhood and who was building what. And there was a certain story where he where I guess it was she who just didn't know what was going on in some particular area. And he says, well, I guess I'll have to find out. And he, she had her, he had, I'm pretty sure this is from Peggy. He had her drive him to that area. He got out of the car and he went to sort of find out what they were building and who was building it and what was happening. And he came back and reported, I think that it was a bar and that they had a very nice piece of wood that they were making for the counter. And, you know, he had his reasons and his reasons weren't trivial. But the way he expressed himself was with enthusiasm and interest in everything. And, and it's a... Uh, um, you know, I had an interesting experience today. I was in Target just buying some little thing that we needed, a plastic box. And uh, there was this woman, um, two people in front of me. And she was a bit heavyset and rather plain. She didn't look like a person who, whose life was utterly fulfilling. And she was buying a gift card and she had picked out one and then she saw another one she liked quite well and she was obviously in the habit that I am also prone to of talking rather quietly to herself about things. Oh yeah, this is a better one like this. And it's hard for me to say this because I, I didn't respond as I'd hoped I would have. And she picked it up and she was so excited about it. She looked around for someone to share it with. 
but she was all by herself. And I was a little too far back, and I didn't, just didn't catch it in time. But it was so poignant. She just really needed somebody to share it with her, and I just let the moment pass. Then God, in his amazing way, I'm in line to buy my thing, and I just buy my little boxes, and I'm about to check out. And this woman behind me is buying a wallet. And she, too, needed to share it with someone. So she starts talking to the clerk about, does this look like a good wallet? The one I have is so worn out. They look, and the clerk was just like, you know, she's just checking people. <laughs> so I turned around and said, oh, I think that's great. It's a beautiful color. Yeah, it looks like it's going to work really well. You know, it's just like, people just need to be seen. And you just, it's, it happens all around us all the time. And if we're sensitive to it, we can help a lot more than we realize. When Dr. Ritchie um, died and came back, I always talk about him, and Jesus had asked him when he was on the other side, how much have you loved? And he basically had to admit none, very little, almost never. He said after he came back from that, he realized that these encounters are very important, that just the opportunity to love people is the only reason that we're here. And that we're always rushing past those opportunities, thinking that we're here for another reason. That's what he said. That experience just completely turned him around. And that every time he sees that there's an opportunity to love someone, he realized that's why he was born. He wasn't born to just move fast through that. You know, different cultures are different. I remember when Savitri first came to Ananda, from, she took the bus, I think from Memphis maybe, and she'd just grown up in a southern culture which had a, the southern, south United States which had a different, slower rhythm and a more people-oriented rhythm. And she was picked up at the bus in Grass Valley and the person who picked her up was a particularly sort of business-like person. Oh, hello, get in the car. <laughs> Let's go. And Savitri was just sure that in some fundamental way she'd offended that person because where she came from, you would never get down to business that fast. Oh, hi, how was your trip? Looking like it's pretty good weather. You chose a nice time to come. You know, was it an easy trip for you? You know, how was it, how was it going through Texas? You know, after five, ten minutes of chatting like that, then you say, oh, maybe we should get in the car and go on our way. Just because the human contact comes first. I mean, it's not, we don't have to slow down that much, but uh, it's important. And Master would walk the Bowery because it was that important. In his own way, he was making those connections. Anyway, Because he was always centered in the infinite, and from the infinite he could see what was really trying to happen. See, that's the other part of it. When you're centered, when you're centered down here, you're looking up and you can't tell what's trying to happen. When you're centered from above, you can see what's trying to happen. And what's trying to happen is one thing, which is egos are trying to shed their identification with ego. Jivas are trying to shed their identification with ego and merge back to the infinite. And there is nothing else going on. Isn't that worth remembering? There's nothing else going on except Jivas trying to shed their ego identity and merge with the infinite. And so anything you can do that facilitates that in yourself or others is the only reason you were born. Well, that got some reactions. Okay. <laughs> Just talking about um, sharing, 
I went to my mailbox last night, and here was somebody in my building I hardly ever see, but I like her. And uh, so she was having this thing with taking care of somebody and helping a, a friend, but overdoing it. And it was like I just kind of tuned in, and she was receptive. And I said, how are you going to help her if you really get uh, you know, too much for your body? And you know, I, I tried to think, well, what would Master want me to say? It was just perfect. Hmm. I was trying to be an instrument, and it was so kind of easy. I thought, am I really saying the right thing? I think I did as well as I could. But I don't see her, but all of a sudden, there I was hmm. at the right time. Yeah. So you never know when you're going to be an instrument no. for Divine Mother, do you? Yeah, it was really, it was fun. Yeah, it if was you're, fun. If you're awake. Huh. Yeah. Um, I think this relates. It's just the Master continued to do it when he wasn't in the body. Um, did you get a, anyone get a, a, I think it was, what was it, divine healing from Mary Cressman today? An email came. And it had to do with celebrating the Mahasmadi. But uh, she said there was a story about a man in Latin America who got a hold of the autobiography for the first time and started to read it and was en enjoying it. And, um, and it happened to be 1952, and uh. he heard the radio um, on. Uh, somehow over the radio, he heard that Yogananda had passed. Wow. And he slammed the book shut and threw it on the floor <laughs> mm -hmm. and said, I don't want a dead guru. Mm -hmm. And then there was some kind of commotion in the house, and then this man walked through his living room and said, am I dead? <laughs> wow. Walked on out, I mean, disappeared. And the man was a little rattled. And he looked at all his windows and doors and everything. Everything was locked. Hmm. And he didn't understand. For He said he sat there in shock. And then, then he understood the blessing that had just come. <laughs> but hmm. caring about somebody, you know, just... You know, that must be some effort to come through into a body again when you're out of it. I mean, not for him, maybe, but... No, it's no effort. But... It's, it's, that's, what, that's one of the things we have to understand. So he, he... To those who think me near, I am near. To all those who received him, it's, it's really just... The sun is always shining. And when we open the curtains, then it'll, it'll come in. And even in that man's dismay over Master dying, he was indicating a tremendous um, relationship with him because otherwise, why would he have cared? Very amazing. And you never know who... You can't judge. You can't say that so-and-so is more advanced or less advanced because these things happen. I know uh, one of the miracle stories I have includes a, a Master appearing to someone when they were very new and just trying to understand what, whether this path was theirs or not. And Master appeared, and uh, only just for an instant, but clearly appeared and essentially confirmed the devotees' belief that this was their own path. And it was only much later that the devotee found out that it didn't happen to everyone. They just thought, well, you know, he, he comes and welcomes us, that's all. And I mean, it was extraordinary. She sensed it as extraordinary, but she didn't know that it was unusual. She just thought he came that way for all. 
But uh, Swamiji talked about how, uh, was it Daniel Boone? Maybe it was Daniel Boone, one of the devotees who left, that, that he used to have all kinds of experiences, and, and, and Swami had very few. But Swamiji realized later that it was, you know, Master was trying to hold him and, and keep him there, but his karma was threatening to take him away and eventually did take him away. And Master said, we'll keep him wandering for a bit before he comes back. But all those experiences were not a sign of near freedom. They were a sign of great crisis that the guru was trying to avert. You know, you just, you have to just live from a very different place. You have to live from a place of whatever God wants is fine with me. And and you just watch the little ego floating. You You live somewhere else. Even if you're completely embroiled in the ego, simultaneously you can also be conscious of the fact um, that I'm just having a temper tantrum right now. Like uh, that little boy in the story that I've told you about where mother locked him in the room while he had his tantrum. He began to have a tantrum. She put him in his room as their rules were. You have a tantrum, I put you in your room. She latched the door. He screamed for a while. It got quiet. So she opened the door and she said, are you done? He said, not quite, mother. <laughs> and then he tantrumed. So she latched him in again and he screamed and kicked for a little while longer and then he was finished. <laughs> I always feel that's exactly our relationship to God. <laughs> you know, he puts us somewhere and we have a little tantrum. I want this. I didn't get that. Why is it so hard? I, this should happen. I don't want to be this way. I don't have to pay back my own karmic debts. I just want to be freed of them. Why is my consciousness like this? Make it different. Someone uh, in the purification ceremony who was fairly new thought that it was necessary to tell me what was written on the piece of paper and the statement was asking to be healed of a certain condition they were facing. To, to, to healed of it? Not to have to experience, I think, was actually how it was put. Or it was to be healed of it. But I, I thought to myself, you know, we all want to be healed. Of course we do. It's quite only natural to want to be healed. But what we really want to do is we want to learn the lessons that made us sick. And we, we rarely say, teach me what I'm supposed to know. I mean, we do say it, but that's not as often as we say as relieve me of the symptoms. <laughs> Make it easier for me. And, you know, I got, I got myself into this difficulty, but now I'd like you to get me out. And And there is a certain righteousness to that prayer. Swami himself said we can appeal to Divine Mother in that when we do the Divine Mother medley, we read Master's own words. Divine Mother, yes, I know the karmic law has to be met, but you can just go around it. You can just free me right now. Make it so that I really don't have to live through my karma. But it's a sort of, it's a lover's conversation at that point. It's not a a coward's plea to be... um, absolved of guilt when guilt is really there. So it's it's just very interesting all of and all of those parts. So master there is a way to be absolved and that's through attunement with the guru. That's the really good news. Just as they said he died for our sins. He really did. And he lives for our sins. He'll he'll take them away from us. But there has to be that surrender. And that takes courage. Um, before we read the next one, it's a little early, but let's take a break now. Okay. Okay, any questions or comments before we go on?
Number six, desirelessness was another strong trait in the master. One time, James J. Lynn, a wealthy disciple, wanted to buy him an overcoat and took him for that purpose into a men's clothing store. Yogananda saw one coat that appealed to him, but when he read the price tag, he hastily looked elsewhere. The coat was very expensive. Mr. Lynn said to him, I saw you looking at that one. Let me get it for you. Yogananda had to agree. Um, to the coat, Mr. Lynn added a matching hat. The master always felt awkward wearing this expensive coat. After some time, he prayed, Divine Mother, it is too good for me. Please take it away. Some days later, he entered a restaurant. He continued the story. The Divine Mother told me, the Divine Mother told me she would be taking it away that evening, so I carefully emptied the pockets. When the meal was finished, I returned to the rack where the coat had been hanging. To my great relief, the coat was missing. But then I noticed an omission. Divine Mother, I prayed, you forgot to take the hat. One day at Mount Washington, he came downstairs and saw a small group of us standing there waiting for him. Isn't it a warm day, he asked. We, knowing that, what he had in mind to give, that he had in mind to give us money for a little ice cream, answered, Oh, it's not so warm, sir. Are you sure it isn't a little warm? Well, if you say so, sir. Finally, with decision, he concluded, I can't keep money and I won't. Here's a little money for ice cream. Go out and buy yourself some. It was only a little money. In any case, it wasn't the money. But his statement, I can't keep money and I won't, that touched me especially. I spent some of my own money for the ice cream that day in order to keep the bills he'd actually handed me. Those bills now rest in the little shrine museum on the hill above my home. If you've seen them in there, the dollar bills that Master gave him for ice cream, they're so sweet. Well, you know, desirelessness is an amazing quality when you think about it. I, in the, my book about Swamiji, um, there's this story, it's from Bilo, uh, I call him Bilo Cicero, Krishnadas, uh, about an experience he had when he was, um, he, he was conked so hard on the head that he started to die. He started to leave his body and he went out into the tunnel of light and was in the presence of a light being. This was all before he came on the path. He was in the presence of a light being. And what he described, and it was so just vivid and so interesting, he said it wasn't so much that his desires were dissolved in the light being. It was that in the presence of the light being, desires could not arise. He said it was a state of complete desirelessness because in the presence of that light being, there was absolutely nothing to want. And so he said he could sort of feel, he said the thoughts that would come, he said, were vaporized instantaneously in the presence of that being. They just, they, there was no, nothing for them to hold on to within himself. And the reason he told me the story was because when he met Swami Kriyananda and knelt in front of him for a blessing and Swami blessed him for the first time, he went right back to that place. And that was the, that was the point of the story from the, my book. But that had always struck me, and he himself described it. He said he never, except in those two moments together, had he ever been in a state where there was nothing wanting. 
And he, he just said, you know, it's so completely outside of our everyday experience because even if our minds are a little calm, there's this enormous uh, backlog of subconscious wants that's still just kind of humming along in there. The little vrittis are spinning and the, and the chakras are humming, just waiting for their chance, you know, to get whatever it is. I mean, just, just think how many small desires exist in even as we sit in this moment. Gee, this bench is a little bit hard. I wonder what I'll have for supper. I wish I didn't have what I had for supper. You know, after this is all over, I'll crawl into my warm bed. Maybe I'll have do my kriyas tonight. And maybe they'll be good. You know, what's going to happen tomorrow? I'm just countless, countless, countless. You know, this, you know, that coat that I saw in the store, it was really pretty. Maybe I should go back and get it. I wonder if I should cut my hair. You know, just a thousand things that are all asking you to respond to them. And just imagine nothing. That just, you're so content right where you're sitting that nothing else is required. There's a story actually also in my book. I'm not sure I put my name on it, but it was about me. I was, this was in the early 70s, and Swamiji was, something was happening in in his house, and I was there. There weren't many of us there, maybe just Seva and I. And uh, he he was not looking toward me because of what he was doing. And I was sitting behind him. And I was feeling unusually uplifted. And he said, without looking toward me, Asha, why can't I feel your consciousness? I said, because it's unusually calm. Ah, he said, yes, there you are. (laughs) And he never turned around, you know. He just was looking away from me the whole time. (laughs) But it was, it was unusually calm, and so he couldn't find me because I was usually such a little whirlwind of thoughts and agitated energy. But just think, desirelessness. It wasn't even, he didn't even say he didn't want anything. He said he was in a state of desirelessness. Now, desirelessness is not just about things. It's simply not desiring that things be other than they are. It's not just stuff we want. It's that we always want things to be different than they are. I want to be more spiritually advanced. I want to be done with this karma. I want to be older, younger, fatter, thinner, married, unmarried, married to someone else, whatever it might be. You know, rich or poor, it just goes on and on and on. We're always just slightly thinking that it should be different than it is. And Swamiji's master's explanation of reincarnation is just exactly that that it doesn't quite work and we just have a very small list of things that we need to adjust. And once they're adjusted, then everything will be content. So we reincarnate with that small list to just move everything a little bit because we don't know how to go into that state where we really realize that I'm just watching the little ego and it's floating in a cosmic sea and I don't have to be so concerned and so engaged and so identified and so affected by all the little nuances of up and down energy that are my desires. So it's, it's, um, it's a meditation. How do I say it? I mean, people have such a hard time with that aspect of the spiritual path. And many people are really frightened of our path because of that. Because they, they fear that they're going to lose a great deal that they want. And um, I mentioned 
I've mentioned before, that sometimes, at least people that I knew and myself, just somehow they think that the idea of giving up your desires is very attractive, because I guess I was just an old yogi from past lives. And I proselytized in the most ineffective manner by telling people that they were, they were not going to get anything they wanted and they were going to get to give up everything they wanted. And I was surprised when that was not so effective. <laughs> and how stupid can you be? I did not understand people from inside themselves. <laughs> that was my relative who said to me when I pointed out how unsatisfying things were. She said, that's why it's important to keep wanting new things. In other words, because you, you get something and it disappoints you, so you have to always have something else on the horizon. And that's how you keep yourself happy. Oh, my, my. That was when I began to realize my method was not working. But to overcome desires, to relinquish desires, to renounce desires is one thing. But to be in a state of desirelessness is something so so far beyond. And that's what people don't understand when they perceive renunciation or the spiritual path as something uh, undesirable as they don't realize that you're not giving up things. You're becoming content in yourself and so that those desires don't even arise. Did you have a comment to make? I think it was 03. Uh-huh. When uh, Swami started to let his spirituality come out. Whenever, yeah, when yeah. he moved to India. Uh-huh. Well, whenever he came back here. When Swami came back here uh-huh. and gave a satsang, it might have been 05, but somewhere in there, 03 or 05. And I was sitting there, uh-huh. and he was going through 350 people one at a time or two at a time. Uh-huh. And I realized at that point there was nowhere else I wanted to be and nothing else I wanted to be doing. Uh-huh. I was perfectly happy to be sitting there for an hour, hour and a half. Uh-huh. And that was you know, the first That's time true. I remember seeing that. No, I remember the, that night, sure, when he would um, just greet everybody who was in the room, right, and, those, and people would just sit around and watch him do it. That's exactly, you know, for my whole life, pretty much, whenever I've been where Swami was, I certainly by no means am always in a highly elevated state. You know, why can't I feel your consciousness, Asha, your little whirlwind of thought? Why isn't it there? Um, but I have experienced the sense that there's just nowhere else to be. This is the only place to be and this is the only thing to think about. And I've had to tell people, many of you, you know, please don't ask me anything when he's around. It's not that I want to be rude to you, it's that I'm incapable of thinking about it and I will end up being rude to you because I can't. I just can't consider other realities in that time. When he leaves, I can easily, but if I'm sitting right in front of him, I can't start a conversation with you about something else. I just can't do it. And yes, <laughs> Nishkama, what were you going to say? Um, I think that we could all play around with a little, um, a little thing that might give us a little bit of a clue as to how we're capable of quietening some of those desires or distractions. And that's simply um, intentionally, wherever you happen to be, when you're bugged by some of these things, just put your attention at the point between the eyebrows. Uh-huh. And you'll find they're harder to make it up there into your consciousness when, if you're able to do that. Yeah, it exactly. kind of quiets them all down a little bit. Uh-huh. Uh, nowhere near to the degree we're talking about our master. But you can, it might give you a little bit of a clue that might suggest that it might be fun to try it again sometime. Yeah, it's directional. Yeah. And it's solving the problems in the direction that we're really trying to go. 
um, just to not uh, not immediately rush out and do something. Master, his his advice for child raising is sounds a little harsh to modern thinking. You know, don't, he, he says, <laughs> don't always feed the children when they're hungry. <laughs> don't always put a sweater on them when they're cold. You know, don't don't train them to think. And I know that that that's hard for people to understand and it's often misunderstood. But he says, don't train them to think that every little desire that crosses their mind, somebody's going to rush around and take care of it. And not in the sense that nobody cares. It's just that it's not necessary. You know, you can you can develop a little fortitude inside yourself. You don't have to be coddled all the time. I, I mean, I've had this strange, a lot of strange ideas have been crossing my mind in the last few years. But I, when I sometimes when I see parents hovering around their kids, I think about it from the kid's point of view, and it doesn't always look so pleasant. You know, to always have those big people just rushing around doing things for you and waiting for you to breathe and then doing something else. Um, it, it's a little bit suffocating. And uh, I was just outside on one uh, Sunday morning, and a man was there with his two small sons. And the family, as I happen to know, has three sons, and the oldest son is considerably older than the little boys, and he's a big boy. The big boy is a big boy. And so I said, I greeted the two small ones, and I said, hello, little boys. Of course, that was a stupid thing to say, because the littlest boy said, I'm not little, <laughs> just like that. But I could feel, you know, it's like it's annoying to be little. And it was certainly annoying to be identified as little, I said, well, I was only thinking in contrast to your dad. <laughs> I tried to get myself out of it. And then the dad wisely said, and not for long. But it was such a, a, a visceral reaction on the part of the child. You know, he's a full-grown he's a full grown person. He's a full soul. He's just, his body's small, but he's no little man. It was a little boy, especially not. I mean, not all children feel that way. One of my friends trying to potty train her extremely reluctant to be potty trained child tried to encourage him by saying, don't you want to be a big boy? No, he said, I like being a baby. <laughs> so she gave up and let the matter rest for a period of time. <laughs> but you know, some children are just, they're just going to enjoy the moment. They're not looking forward to all that responsibility. But even that, just desirelessness, just being right where you are. But of course, the only way you can be completely content is if you're centered in the infinite self. And so everything works together. Centered in the infinite self, where would I want to be when you're with Swamiji? When we were with Swamiji in that night, and he was just putting such divine energy forward, you know, you couldn't leave. And why would you? And why would you have wanted to be anywhere else? You were right exactly in the only place on the planet that mattered, which was in his company feeling his consciousness, which made us feel as he feels. And so it's very fun. And uh, it's, work, it's, it's worthwhile. Um, I asked Swamiji once uh, what the advantages of celibacy and disadvantages of non-celibacy were. I'm just sort of the comparison between the married and the renunciate life. That was at the time when Ananda was transitioning. He said, well, the difficulty with celibacy is that for some people it just creates an unbearable tension. And he said, whereas true renunciation of that aspect of life can 
make your consciousness lighter and lighter because you, you just become separated from physical imperative. And physical imperative really holds our minds down a lot. You, you also become disidentified with gender identification if you're not constantly reaffirming it because gender identification is entirely physical. And so if you're, if you're not... Um, I mean, sex is the main thing that defines gender. And if you're not engaged in sexuality, and in fact, if you have disciplined yourself to not be thinking about it or pulled toward it, you become very light in your consciousness. But if it's not, if it's merely a frustration for you, you become very tense in your consciousness. As Swami said, instead of becoming lighter and lighter, you become tighter and tighter, is how he put it. The difficulty with a non-celibate life and having a sexual relationship is that the thought grows in your mind that desires are there to be fulfilled. It was just so it's just such a subtle answer, isn't it? It's not like about sin or about anything like that. The thought grows in your mind that desires are there to be fulfilled. I mean, and that is the nature of a sexual relationship. I mean, that's the whole point is that, you know, we have these desires and we, we make a commitment that we will fulfill those desires. But then the thought grows in your mind that that's what desires are for. And we, we don't think anymore that desires are there to be transcended. We think instead that they're there to be fulfilled and it spills over into many other areas of our life. Which style of life we choose is a, a matter of karma and what's going to work for us. Because if it only creates tension to have that desire continually frustrated, we're much better off, you know, having a, an uplifting, solid relationship and then be aware of the danger. And that is often why sexuality destroys relationships because it gets in people's heads that you're there to fulfill my desires, not merely in, in sexual matters, but just kind of everywhere. And you begin to think the person's there to make you happy and a whole series of things you know, cascading series of disasters ensue, which all starts from the thought that the world is here to fulfill my desires. And it's very difficult. It, it's very difficult. And that's why so many relationships smash on the rocks. And when Swamiji gave, even, you know, many years ago, his excellent advice for marriage, I, among others, just didn't have any idea what he was talking about. I just couldn't imagine it. You read Master's Suggestions for Marriage and you just like, when I first read them, I actually remember somebody tried to read them as a humorous essay, which was totally inappropriate. But it was, they were so far from what people were thinking. You know, sleep in separate bedrooms, take separate vacations, don't always be in the same room. Just a whole bunch of stuff about just keeping it a little more impersonal and don't think about it so much as desire fulfilled. I never suggested them or read them, really, seriously. I would only mention them in the context of maybe we don't know everything and something else is different. But at this stage of my life, they make such good sense to me. They make perfect sense to me. But I know they didn't for a long, long time. I couldn't see it. I just couldn't see it. I was too caught up in the desires, just like that. There's no other word for it. I'm not just talking in sexual terms. That's too simplistic. It's much more than that. The thought that someone else will make you happy. Oh, desirelessness. And, and it's way beyond all of us. This is, this is part of, I, I made reference at one point to a friend of mine who 
um, had read certain teachings of masters, you know, on the level of desirelessness and, and so on like that, and actually just got himself into terrible psychological trouble and terrible spiritual trouble trying to live up to something that was just karmically inappropriate and never really... It was a strange case of, of misguided ego, really. And then he asked me, well, why didn't... Because we'd, you know, we'd grown up together spiritually. Why, didn't, why did you get mixed up like that? I said, because it never crossed my mind that that teaching applied to me. <laughs> I mean, I knew it was there, but I just never... It never even occurred to me. I didn't even feel guilty. I just never... It was very interesting, and it just wasn't about me. It, I mean, it never rose to the point where I even said it wasn't about me. It never occurred to me that it was about me. Because it was just like, I was so far from that, I couldn't even see it. And, you know, to an extent, I feel at this stage of my life, you know, I, I read now a lot of things that I just did not understand that people were telling me about life. What to speak of specific things, but so many things that just seem so extreme or so something. Now they just seem right in the middle of the road. And my heartfelt prayer to Master at all times is, don't make me stupid again. You know, like, how much does youth make you stupid? That's what I'm concerned about. I'm half joking, but only half. I'm very comforted by the pictures of Swami as a baby because he looks very wise. So maybe it's possible, of course. That's a special case, but why not? Why not? <laughs> you know, he, he, he knew from childhood, and we knew to a large extent. I mean, many, many, many things of this world never, never, never attracted me ever, even from when I was born. But others did. Lots of others did. And wouldn't it be nice if they didn't? If we just knew, I'm content in myself. On Sunday when I was talking about that little baby, it was Leah Mahoney reaching up for Patrick's finger. Just like, you know, she, she was eight minutes old, maybe less, maybe three. Immediately she just went like that and took it. Like, whoa, don't we have any period of like grace? That's why Master said we cry when we're born. Here I am again and once I'm here... I'll just grab for that hand. And and I don't mean to be rude because it was an extraordinary moment. It brought tears to my eyes. And you know, there it was, a newborn baby girl and her, her father. I mean, it was a great, it was an extraordinary moment just seeing them like that and see her reach for his hand and, you know, him give his hand to her. You know, of course, his big, great big hands and her little teensy ones. It was everything designed to just touch your heart very, very deeply. But then there's the whole other side of it. Oh my God, here we are again. Just starting down this road and where will it ever end? The house of mirrors, as Swami calls it. Oh look, there's a pretty reflection. Let me grab it. Wow. However, Master was also very enthusiastic and he just brought inner joy into everything that he did. Okay, any other comments or thoughts on this one? Because, yes. Is it, can we assume, should we assume, that uh, our spiritual practices, that if we have you know, those fleeting moments of, oh, uh, I, you know, I felt it for 15 seconds, 20 seconds. I felt this sense of, I didn't need anything. Right. 
can we assume that somehow that process, if repeated over and over, will teach us oh, absolutely. to avoid all those other moments? Oh, absolutely. Joy is the best teacher. Swamiji said, we learn from having our desires frustrated, but we learn more from having them fulfilled. It was a very important teaching for me at that time. He said, when your desire is frustrated, you're forced to deal with it so you can learn from having to overcome frustration and disappointment. But it will linger in the back of your mind that I really want that, and if it was only given to me, I'd be happier. And so what we really, when we really learn is when we get what we want. And, and, it's, and we don't learn at that point that it's terrible. We just learn that it's limited. You see, there's a great deal of difference, and that's a, another thing that people profoundly misunderstand. It's not that any of these things are bad. They're just not as fulfilling as we hoped. Because even when we have all the external things in the whole world, um, they're still external to our actual nature. And they don't fundamentally make us different. The only thing that makes us different is when we ourselves change our consciousness. But getting what we want often drives us deeper to seek God, because now I have it. And now what? And now what do I do? And so it's, it's really a, a big deal. And that's why you can't just overcome your desires by thwarting them. It's not so simple. I'll just go off to a cave and do nothing. It's not so simple. Yes. Could you maybe speak a little bit to the, maybe contradiction is too much of a word, but sort of, I guess, for lack of a better one, the apparent contradiction in your last statement, which is that um, talking about relationships, that it sort of tricks you into thinking desires are there to be fulfilled. And you're also saying, on the other hand, that you learn more and are driven um, driven towards God more quickly if your desires are fulfilled rather than frustrated. Well, he, what Swamiji said is the danger of... of uh, well, we were talking about sexuality. I mean, I asked him a very specific question. Is that the thought can arise in your mind that desires are there to be fulfilled. So, so you just have to keep that thought in mind. It's not that, that it will happen. Because, you know, it's, celibacy can also be very, very freeing. It doesn't have to become imprisoning. And marriage doesn't have to be, relationships do not have to be a downward spiral of self-indulgence they can be a platform from which an entirely different kind of life. It can sort of settle that area of your life and become, um, uh, as I say, the platform, the form from which you are able to expand because you're not struggling against that thought all the time. I certainly, you know, in the life that I've lived with David, I just don't think I, and perhaps not he, could have done as much as we've done if we tried to do it separately. It just worked. It worked for us to do it together. And I've... I'm quite, I mean, I've loved being married to him. We've had a very, very, very good life together. And uh, there you have it, you know. It's not God realization. And it's great. And if God wants me to be married to him or someone else again, that's fine. Um, But I don't want to be compelled to do anything. That was what I was saying to you. You know, I was not, it was not a free choice to marry him. It was compelled by desire. And so it wasn't like I calmly sat there and, you know, all right, Master, if this is what you want. It was, wow, this is what I want. And I sure hope it's what you want. 
you know, because we're going here anyway. And it wasn't unthinkable. I would not have married a man who was not on our path, who didn't share core values. I mean, I can make a thousand lists of why he was a sterling choice, but he wasn't a free choice on my part. And fortunately, I had good karma. So even though it wasn't a free choice, it was by by no means a stupid choice. It was a wise choice. And, you know, in retrospect, it's hard for me to imagine I could have had the life I've had if we hadn't been together. So who can say? You know, you just look at it afterwards. So then the thought also came to my mind in terms of thwarting desires, fulfilling desires, and then transcending them. Sort of, I thought back, because we're talking about marriage and all these things, to you um, talking about how you thought at one point that you would want children. And then that desire sort of I guess faded or was transcended. Vaporized. Yeah. Well, that my desire to have children um, was part of the cycle that when I look back at my aspirations from my earliest memories, my aspirations have always been the same. But my understanding of how to how to achieve those aspirations has developed over time, and having children, being a mother, is really how I would put it. Raising children. Um, was a concept in my mind that I thought would expand my consciousness. But what I really wanted was to expand my consciousness, and that was the only thing I could think of to do it. But when I found something that was more directly about expanding consciousness, almost in that moment I forgot about having children. And the thought rarely arose after that. When I held Andrew Selby when he was maybe a day old, it crossed my mind. And David wisely said, let's wait a little while and think about it. At which point it vaporized again. Because, I, you know, I'm a person who likes, who likes children, likes babies, and, you know, mothering is natural to me. I don't have, like some women, like, no way. It seemed like it was always natural to me. And I'm surprised I never did it, but delighted that I never did it. People say to me, oh, do you regret it? Oh, no, not at all. So that one is gone. But if you ask me, would I never marry again, I can't answer that question. I just pray that I will be in a greater state of desirelessness if the question ever comes to my fore again. And then I'll do God's will, which I don't think I didn't do this time, but it was more by luck (laughs) than by actual... I'm joking. You understand. I don't. I don't want to disrespect David because I respect him immensely, and I'm very grateful for the whole thirty years of it. But still, one looks at one's life objectively. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Well, Certainly, Edmund. Um. It looks like ever since I got in the path, my desires are still there, but are better desires. You have better desires, yeah, yes. Yeah, like not real bad, the ones yeah. that kill me. Yeah. But you don't it seems have like death. in a path, it just exactly. gets better. But you, I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not even close to desires list, definitely. But yeah. it seems like uh, the more I meditate, yeah. my desires becoming better. I mean, uh, Actually, somebody better choices. Somebody asked me that question just this afternoon, basically saying, if you keep thinking about God, then even your restless thoughts are going to be about God, aren't they? <laughs> and I thought that was really well put, because in fact that's true. The way, the way Master describes it, Swami describes it, 
it's always because we have a bottom and a top to our spine. Master had enough ego to animate his body. He ate food. He sometimes rested. He had to care for his body. His body eventually died. Sometimes it got sick. You know, and on the spectrum, there was the lower and the higher end, of, even of his spectrum, of Swami's spectrum. Um, and what happens to us is not that we, that there's, that until we're self-realized, we have, we have, better, we have higher and lower aspects to our nature. All three of the gunas exist. That's what I want to say. But the whole thing keeps moving up. (laughs) And the bottom is not as low as it used to be. So there's still a bottom, but it's not as bad. So you're sitting in meditation and you're thinking about the kirtan tomorrow night, right? (laughs) So your mind is still restless, but that's what you're thinking about. (laughs) Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it does make sense because uh, I know you always say just be where you are because sometimes we get caught up on like try to push something that not even close to letting go. Yeah. And I just try to call master and say, master, you know, I'm getting this desire, but, you know, it's up to you. If I get it, it's because you gave it to me. Exactly. Because I'm trying my best. All that's all we can do, try our best. That's exactly right. But I think as long as we keep meditating, it just keeps getting better. But it's overcoming like that. Yeah. Still you know, at the, when I made the decision to get married, when we made the decision to get married all those years ago, that was I, you, you articulated it very sweetly, more sweetly than I have. Which is, you know, Master, I'm just doing my best here. You know, and this is, here we are, and this is my best at this point, so let's work on it together. And, you know, just be at peace with it. I knew I had to be completely at peace with it. I didn't want to go into it with any conflict. You can't go into a relationship with conflict because pretty soon you'll blame the person. Because, you know, I was in the monastery, and I left the monastery to get married, so it was, it was serious. I mean, it was a time when we, when we all left the monastery, but I was one of the leaders leaving. leaving. And I knew I couldn't go into that with any conflict. You know, imagine a few years down the line, a few arguments later, you begin to feel that someone has ruined your life. And I I just wasn't going to go there. So it had to be a completely accepted reality, no matter what. And it it was the right thing. I don't doubt that it was the right thing. It was certainly, at the time, the fruits of it have proved that. But I, I really had to be exactly like that. Okay, sir, this is just this is what we're going to do. Come with me. Help me through this. I, I'm, I'm accepting this is my reality at this point. Yeah, and then, you, then there's never, a, nothing ever crosses your mind after that. It just becomes the conditions of your life. As when I asked Swamiji, that was his answer. Oh, Asha, it's just a thing. Whether it's good or bad entirely depends on what you do with it. It doesn't, it's not inherently either positive or negative. You can make the best terrible and you can make the worst good. Entirely up to you. So, yeah. Uh-huh. It really came up to my mind after this weekend when you guys read that letter. I uh-huh. said, okay, Master, you know, you say you're going to be here. Yeah. My desire is getting stronger, so either get it away from me or just give yeah. it to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's a prayer that people use. Either, either free me of this desire or fulfill it because this in-between ground is driving me crazy. Yeah, that's a very honest prayer. You know, he does tell, I can't remember if it was a page, he says, you know, either burn it out or fulfill it. Yeah. 
Either burn it out or fulfill it, is what he said. Yeah, I, I just heard that. I think it was a master at one of his CDs. I don't, I don't really know if that... I mean, I'll, I'll accept that. But what he's really saying is what, there's no point in trying to suppress desires. Yeah, of what avails suppression. That's what Krishna says. Suppression is a different... And suppression is what people get into. That's what my friend got into that made him so upset. You know, he just suppressed everything, thinking that was the way to be a devotee. It didn't work. He was neither transcending nor accepting. He was just suppressing, and there is no future in that. It just all gets—you just get all confused because you you end up losing track of what's causing what. So, take Master with you. As one of my one of the stories that I'm I'm thinking about my book again. Isn't that nice? That's because the school plays almost here. Um, one of the stories the man said early on. I read that Master said, "Just if you can't." If you're going to do something, even if it's not something you ought to do, just bring God with you. So Master and I went to a lot of very unusual places together. <laughs> it was just beautifully good. He said he would come, so I just took him with me. <laughs> oh, well, well. Okay, I think that's the end of the night. Thank you all very much.